The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Anne from Piggy Podcast joins me to talk about the music of Pokemon Stadium for the N64. While most of the songs are pulled from the original Gen 1 Game Boy games, it still manages to do a number of interesting things with them. We also discuss the announcer, and explain what's up with the shouting guy in the sushi minigame. To find out what we thought of the game itself, be sure to listen after the outro. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PvP Podcast, and we've come to our next discussion in our Pokemon side game music discussion series. This time we're going to be talking about the music of Pokemon Stadium for the Nintendo 64. We're going to be talking about, first of all, some background information on the game, uh, a few specific tracks, the overall style, and we'll also be doing at the very end a sort of a bonus segment on the game itself and how do we think uh, what its legacy is and stuff like that. Okay, as far as the game itself, it has kind of uh, an interesting development history. Not unlike Pokemon Snap that we talked about last time on this series, it was one point was planned for the ill-fated Nintendo 64 disk drive add-on. Uh, you may remember that was an add-on that attached to the bottom of the N64, only ever really came out in Japan, and even there was not much of a a, th- a thing. Eventually, it was moved to a cartridge, but perhaps partially as a result, um, the Pokemon Stadium we know here in the States is really the second game in the series, because in Japan, there is a Pocket Monster Stadium game that came out back in, I guess, 1998, and... It only had uh, you know, 42 playable Pokemon based on what was most popular in Japan tournaments at the time. And uh, the rest they had models for, but not animations. Uh, I know that may sound a little familiar to some recent events, but uh, I sort of pride myself on not talking about that on this channel. But in any case, about uh, somewhere about a year later, or the following year in 1999 Japan, and then in uh, the first slash second quarter of 2000, we got uh, what we know of as our Pokemon Stadium. It has all 151 Pokemon that were available up to that point. And uh, according to some stuff I looked up, I, I couldn't get a consistent value for like sales figures, but it appears that this was one of the perhaps the biggest selling Pokemon side game up until some of the uh, Mystery Dungeon games started coming out about uh, six or seven years later. And what was kind of your original experience with this uh, game when you played it back in the day? Um, well, when I was about uh, in junior high, we my family finally bought our first um, home console, which was an N64. And this this was one of the games we bought for it. And I had loved Pokemon a lot. So obviously I was into it and my siblings and all. It was something that we could play together and also something that I could hog and play by myself. <laughs> so. It was a lot of fun. I just remember a lot of um we got 
out of school early on Wednesdays at that time at like around noon. It was crazy. And I just remember a lot of Wednesday afternoons of me being home before all the other kids and being able to just binge play Pokemon and the mini games, especially I loved. I liked the tournaments too, but I was all over the mini games. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely be talking about some of the music from the mini games later. Uh, I definitely picked this up sometime in the spring of 2000. I don't remember exactly when. I, I would have been in high school. And, uh, you know, it was actually a, a kind of an oversized box because it came with this thing called the transfer pack that you would attach to the N64 controller in there. But as far as the game itself, I, I kind of progressed through it. And um not sure I have amazing memories. There was definitely some parts I liked more than others. Um, but it was, it was a nice addition, and I kind of do lament the fact, and we'll talk about this in our bonus segment, that after the fourth generation, the Diamond and Pearl generation, uh, and in fact, just that part of the generation, uh, we haven't gotten games like this. And, you know, now with stuff on the Switch, maybe it, it seems kind of redundant, but I think they could have gone on a bit longer. But, yeah, I'm not sure I have really a ton of memories of 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 playing this back in the day that are really specific and stuff like that, but I definitely got a lot of use out of it and got decently far. Uh, we'll be talking about the structure of the game a little bit as time goes on. <laughs> but um, you remember with Pokemon Snap, we talked about how there was really just more or less one person who was in charge of all the musical stuff in there. And actually, it was kind of the last game she ever did. Uh, this time, we have more or less the opposite scenario. There's about six or seven or eight, depending on how you decide to count people who worked on music for this game. Uh, some of it is definitely inherited from the uh, the partial version that only came out in Japan back in 98. There's definitely some music carried over there. Let me explain why the, the credits for this are, are fairly long. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of them, and many of them I could find very recent credits for and are, are probably still working at Nintendo today. This was very much composed by folks who are from the Nintendo side, even though this game was developed by HAL Laboratories, as most of the N64 side games were uh, in some way developed by HAL. But let's see, who do I got here? I, I made a whole list of who these folks are. Let's see, there's Toru uh, Minigishi, who also has credits for Splatoon and Mario Maker 2 that came out earlier this year. Legend of Zelda. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Zelda tie-ins here, as well as a bunch of other Nintendo franchises. Kenta Nagata worked on 1080 snowboarding for the N64, which was an, uh, obviously a snowboarding game. I have the soundtrack for that. And then Mario Kart 64, which I'm sure most of the folks here are familiar with, at least some inversion. And apparently he's also credited in the deluxe Switch version of Mario Kart 8. Uh, Masafumi Kawamura, who is also credited on Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. Uh, Mitsuhiro Hikino, who is credited on the Pikmin franchise. Let's see. Hidaki uh, Shimizu. I hope I'm getting these comments right. Uh, he's one of the two pe people who I think are credited more with the sound technical side. Sound programmer? Yeah, I was going to say I've found in my research, usually Masafumi Kawa uh, Kawamura and Hideaki Shimizu were usually credited as sound programmers, but like, there's a really thin line in some of these records as to which... <laughs> Were they composers or were they just the programmers? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, Hideaki is uh, interesting. One of the other credits I found is that 
for the Animal Crossing games, at least like probably the one on the uh, the GameCube, he is credited with creating the NES emulator there, which I believe is actually the one that would be used later on the Wii Virtual Console. Huh. And I think to some degree, even on like the Wii U Virtual Console, some of the code was used there. So kind of a, a pretty important person in a certain way, not necessarily to the music per se, but mm-hmm. to sort of the... Um, some of the some stuff you you may be very familiar with if you've been in the Nintendo ecosystem for a while. All right, so let's see. I've got a few other names. One of them we'll be saving later, but one I wanted to mention was Questar Welsh, who apparently like handled some of the English side recording duties for things like the announcer voice and um a few other things there. He's apparently from something called Real to Real Recording, but one of them is R E E L, one of them is R E A L. I was actually able to dig up, I think, an old website that belonged to him that had an email address that I tried contacting via. I didn't uh, didn't return to sender, but would be interesting to learn more. As far as like other, he, he appears to have done a fair number of things for four kids. He's credited on music to Duel by the Yu Gi Oh album and Pokemon Christmas Bash, and. Um, that's that's kind of what I was able to to dig up there. Did you have any other other thoughts there? Um, I found some interesting trivia on some of these guys. Um, for Kenta Nakata, I dug in a little bit. Like I found, as you said, he's kind of a staple of Nintendo. Um, it looks like he's composed a lot of music for Mario. Or no, no, sorry. Um, he married uh, his co-worker, Shinobu Tanaka, who has composed a lot of music for Mario. And I wrote that down just because I thought it was super cute. Toru Minagashi is kind of interesting because it seems he's um, largely self-taught in music. And he eventually did, you know, get to study a little bit and take some classes and piano lessons eventually. But starting up... Like he he basically had a career before he started getting any special musical education, and just was so interested in music he taught himself and apparently was inspired by um, Modest Mugorski. Like he did a a project where he did a a bunch of m- musical movements set to paintings by this artist named Victor Hartman, and the idea of matching the music to the these still visuals kind of gave Minageshi the idea that like video game music, which, you know, he also loved, could be a profession for him. So he kind of just kind of followed that path and self-taught his way to the top, it seems, which I think is really kind of cool and inspiring. Yeah, definitely some interesting things. I mean, having played a lot of the games here, like uh, Hajime uh, Wakai appears to be credited as, I guess, the backup composer for Star Fox 64 under Koji Kondo. Also credited on Pikmin and uh, up through like Breath of the Wild for Zelda stuff. So, uh, like I said, a lot of these folks uh, seem to still have uh, careers. Uh, Nintendo has a kind of reputation for keeping folks around a long time and things like that. So, job security. Yeah, they they've uh, no not having to go third party or anything like that. They've had sort of that luxury there, but large cast characters and some of that may well have to do with the fact that this game was um iterated over several times effectively speaking uh, before we get into individual songs let's talk about some of the sort of the general music characteristics here now as we mentioned in our snap episode the N64 does not really have any sort of dedicated sound hardware yes there is a 
a feed that goes into like the uh, the multi tap or the multi out on the back of the console. But in terms of like there's no dedicated like sound chip like you would have on you know even the Super Nintendo or the PlayStation or the Saturn. Uh, most of the work has to be done by the the main CPU itself for any type of sound that comes in there. That being said, most uh, games are sample-based um, in terms of that, and they have some standard sound engines. Um, as far as the sort of instrumentation, I, I kind of have some interesting thoughts there, but it, it definitely seems to be using a very much a sporting event type of sound. There's, uh, And this is not meant to be a slight against this, but there's definitely a, a very much a marching band quality to some of this, although there there is some strings, some guitar, and some pipe organ, uh, which is also kind of a sporting events-related instrument that you'll hear, particularly, I would say, at baseball, uh, sometimes basketball and hockey. And did you, did you kind of get that uh, feeling as well as far as the instrumentation goes? Well, I was actually a little surprised when you said kind of a sporty quality until you brought up marching band. And this score loves its horn section so much. So, yeah, now that you bring it up, I can see like a high school marching band playing some of these songs. And I that kind of fits in with the idea of like the league tournaments and Pokemon Stadium and the way I've always kind of pictured Pokemon as a sport. But yeah, like it's an interesting soundtrack. It's especially listening to it on better headphones than you might, you know, just hearing it come out of your N64 back in the day. I think I got an appreciation for everything that's going on in the soundtrack. I don't think it always came through when I was young. I definitely didn't appreciate it. Yeah, and like I said, not to insult, you know, marching band, because, you know, carrying an instrument and playing it while moving in step and stuff like that is hard. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going to deny that at all. They, they weren't trying to sound like a, a concert band or a concert orchestra as mm. much as they were going for sort of a live in-person performance like you would get at like a high school or college uh, sporting event, you know, a, a stadium like a football game. Or, you know, maybe some other stuff. Yeah, it's capturing that different energy than you would get, you know, in a very nice concert hall with that type of a band. You get a very different feel than what it seems that they're going for, which has just that energy of like, we are all outside and in this event and everything's loud and our spirits are high. Gambare! Like, yeah. And we'll sort of discuss about how successful we think that is. I think there's parts where it does better than others. Um, but I think the other thing we should mention is that there are some original tracks, a few of which we'll be talking about in this discussion. But a lot of the music from the game is very clearly derived from the red, blue, yellow, green, I guess, if you were in Japan, series of, of games that have been out to that point. And... Uh, you know, that is actually a bit limiting. Um, the original games, if my memory serves me, there are only four battle themes in the entire game. There's one for wild Pokemon, one for trainers Pokemon uh, battles, and then one, let's see, then another one for gym leaders slash the elite four. And then there's finally, there's one for the final battle with the uh, your rival champion. And if I remember correctly, that's it. There is not a separate theme for, like, battling Team Rocket grunts. There's not a separate theme for battling legendaries. 
Um, your rival doesn't normally have their own battle theme that you get in there. So they had to kind of improvise a bit with some of the tracks here rather than there, there are a number that seem to be fairly straight, higher fidelity versions going from the Game Boy to the Nintendo 64 uh, of game songs. But they're, they, they definitely had, in some cases, very limited stuff to work with. Uh, and did you notice any of that yourself? When I was playing the game, no. But, you know, when I was stopping to pick out tracks for this, I did notice, like, yeah, there's not... All the tracks that I expected would be different, such as Battling Your Rival or the Team Rocket Grunt. Yeah, some of those iconic tracks and moments that you would have in a Pokemon game that often just seem to be the same music as other places, etc., or didn't seem to be there at all. I did notice that. But yeah, while I was playing the game, I it didn't, I didn't notice it at, at all. Yeah, I think to get like a fourth battle theme, they had to reuse the Team Rocket hideout theme or something like that. It was either that or the cave theme or something. It was one of those two tracks or something like that. They had to repurpose to get some extra battle music in there, which was uh, a bit of an interesting choice. Um, before we go into tracks, I do want to mention one more thing, and that's that. This is one of the very few side games that has a commercially released soundtrack. There is a dual soundtrack that was released in Germany through what is basically the German equivalent of Nintendo Power magazine. It may have been given some out some other ways. That is a combined soundtrack of Pokemon Snap and Pokemon Stadium. And I think we talked about that a little bit during our Snap discussion, and there are also some remixes on that album and it's got kind of a reversible cover, which is kind of neat and all that stuff. But uh, if you do want to pick up a physical copy of the soundtrack, that is a definite option there. Okay, so if you follow our other discussions, you know what we do is that Anne and I will each pick out a couple songs. And uh, we've done that here. We've each picked out three. But uh, the, the first song that I picked out is from uh, the way the game is structured. There's a few kind of main modes. There's a, a mode where you go through all the gym leaders and the Elite Four and the champion. And then there's, there's a, a set of different rule sets you can use to go through a series of eight different uh, trainers and sort of work your way through that. And that's divided, like I said, into, into four different things. And uh, sort of the, the smallest one is called the Petite Cup. I think it's called the Little Cup in some of the later games that have a similar mode. But basically, this is for very low-level, unevolved Pokemon. And uh, the way these, these eight uh, round things are structured is that usually the first three rounds have one song, the fourth through the sixth one have another song, the semifinals has a song, and then the finals has, a, has a, the fourth song from, from that level of competition. And so one of the ones I picked out is the Petite Cup, which has, like I said, the unevolved Pokemon. And this is rounds one to three. So this is the kind of the, the first one you hear. And uh, there were a couple things I kind of wanted to call out about this particular song is that, uh, first of all, it has a, a very up-tempo beat. Uh, it, it sort of sounds, you know, going back to the whole marching band concept, it's, it's sort of a, a fight song or has a marked quality to it. And did you kind of concur on that or have some other thoughts? Yeah, like just so much brass, so much brass. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> yeah, it definitely a lot of brass and percussion. I, I mm -hmm. bless my mother. I uh, did uh, kind of voice this soundtrack on her while we were driving to my uh, cousin's place <laughs> for Thanksgiving um, a week or two ago. 
And um, she said, she, yeah, she kind of preferred if there was less percussion and stuff like that. But, <laughs> no, it definitely goes for that. And then uh, structurally, it has a lot of little bits and pieces to it. It has a, a very fast intro. Mm -hmm. And then, like, there's a brief slow passage where at least where some of the percussion fades away. Maybe that just makes it fee feel slower. <laughs> and then it sort of speeds back up again. And... Uh, like I said, I don't know if it really actually changes the tempo or if the, the beat just changes enough to make it sound like it's getting slower. Mm -hmm. And then through the other thing I wanted to mention with it is that um, if you listen to this one, there's a very clever use about – it's hard to say exactly where because these, these are video game tracks. So they loop indefinitely. But there's a part where it uses the Pokemon Center recovery chime mm -hmm. uh, as sort of a – I don't know if stinger is the right word. Probably not, but – you kind of get what I'm going for there. Did you kind of notice that, Anne? Yeah, like, I loved all the little places where the xylophone came in, and it, it seemed to be playing a lot of other motifs that, like, seemed very familiar to me, but I couldn't place them. Um, but, yeah, the, when the xylophone came in, like, at the end of a phrase with, like, just dun-dun-da-da-da-da, and, and, like, went on its way. It was just so cute. Like, you're right, it's really clever. There were a lot of um, ways that themes and chord progressions and the like were mixed together in this track and used in unexpected ways so that it sounded very much like there's no doubt this is a Pokemon track, not like a Mario track. Like I think I even heard like an opening of World of Pokemon at one point. Yeah, that that's one of the, the great kind of things about this. Well, I guess that's about all I have to say about the, that particular track. And let's go to one you picked next. It's the Pika Cup semifinal music. So this would play in the seventh of the eighth ones that you go from there. If I remember correctly, this is derived from the Gym Leader slash Elite Four theme from the main games. Is that about right? In my head, it sounded a lot more, more like just the regular battle music, but... Yeah, definitely the more important battles like that. Dun dun. dun. It, it's sort of, but like um, Petite Cup, it's kind of remixed in a way that's just a little bit different. It has a slightly different rhythm, and this one, like, it's so dramatic. There, there's timpani everywhere, and it kind of alternates between a, a couple loudish moments, but then the low horns. Ah, oh, like there's such a, an interesting feel about this music that sounds so very familiar to us that I really love. Yeah, regardless of which sort of uh, competition thread you go through, you'll notice that the uh, as you move from battles one to three to four to six to the semifinal to the final, that the uh, the music does get more tense and more um, more dramatic and stuff like that, regardless of which one you're in. And uh, for this particular one, it's got... Kind of the way the low horns are used, especially, I think. Um, this one is one of the ones that definitely seems to have a lot of Star Fox 64 influence, at least to me. <laughs> and I suspect may have been arranged by Hajime uh, Wakai. Mm. No idea for sure on that one. Uh, arrangement credits for video game music are often quite difficult, especially when there's this many people involved. It can be very difficult to sort of figure out uh, who is in charge of what. I mean, obviously, all the game music, since this is Gen 1, was done originally by uh, Junichi Masuda. The reason I brought up the low horns is that that's very common in a lot of the, uh, particularly later in the game, in places like uh, Area 6, 
or maybe to a lesser extent in the Star Wolf theme from Star Fox 64. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of um, motif there is very similar, and I got a very similar vibe that, you know, if I didn't know this was based on a Pokemon song, I, I might uh, think, is this a lost track from Star Fox or something like that? But uh, <laughs> I don't know how much experience you That's have what, with the Star Fox 64, Anne. That might have been a little before you got your system. Um, my friend had Star Fox, and we played that a lot. So, I but I probably still don't have as much like affinity for it as you do. But that's not a terrible guess because you're right. Like this, like you can tell they're part of the same game, but they're also very, very different. Like the Petite Cup, as you say, is a bit more of a marching bandy, sporty quality to it. This one. Like, you almost wonder, like, you could play a Dungeons and Dragons themed game to this music during parts of it. Like, again, it just kind of has this dramatic feel. So, yeah, it's interesting what different, all these different composers working together on the project could bring to it, because they do sound slightly different. Like, like maybe one of them could be in a different game, whereas Petite Cup definitely couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, the uh, Pika Cup, a little bit uh, further up and, and more, I don't know, adult is probably not the right word, but more grown up uh, overall. But like I said, each one does follow that uh, little trend line within it. Admittedly, Don't Say You Love Me doesn't have much relation to the plot of Pokemon the first movie. At best, you could relate it to Brock, but perhaps that's better left unexplored. Anyway, this debut single from M2M was likely intended to serve as more of a bridge that would raise awareness about the band for the movie audience and the movie for the music audience. If nothing else, it probably generated buzz for the movie in M2M's native Norway. As for the song itself, the assertive tone does wind up being a good fit for the franchise, representing the stand-up-for-yourself theme of the series without sounding excessively angry. This tone carries into the music video, whose drive-in theater setting gives it a more casual feel and, of course, provides a convenient opportunity to work in scenes from the movie. Speaking of the movie, have you ever noticed that the names of the two featured Pokémon line up neatly with the name of the band? Nice bonus, I suppose, but it's obviously not the only reason they were selected. Anyway, do you have any thoughts about this song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. So I think one thing you mentioned earlier is that there are a number of mini games here. I believe there are actually nine. There's a few more in Pokemon Stadium 2, which is the gold silver one. And we each picked one mini game theme to sort of uh, go with. Uh, I picked Sushi Go Round. This is the Lickitung game where you're trying to eat sushi that has the highest value uh, on there. And your goal is to eat as much in the time allotted. Uh, the the music for this, as you might kind of guess, is, I don't know how truly traditional it is, but um, has a very Japanese feel to it, and uh, the actual, like, melody to it is, is it's actually very percussion-driven and, and things like that, and I actually think that if you just listen to the track, it's not maybe that interesting, but once you have all the, there's a lot of sound effects, not just from the Lickitung but it seems like there's like a, a some sort of like Japanese announcer, and there's like um, Anne. Can you can you fill us in on any of this? <laughs> okay, um, so the game you're basically at a kaiten sushi, which is a sushi restaurant where the sushi comes out on a conveyor belt in plates, and 
if you're eating at that restaurant, you just take a plate off the conveyor belt. And when you're done with your meal, you pay for all the plates you took. And some plates are more expensive than others. I loved the Kaiten Zushi a lot. Um, but during the game, as the conveyor belt is going around, the Lickenton are eating, there is... This guy who sounds very much like a sushi stuff, like he starts the game like, Yirashai! And, um, but he is calling out the different types of expensive sushi that are coming up. Like when a, um, a shrimp sushi comes up, he'll come, he'll call out Ebicha. And, you know, for the uni, which I forget what that is. I think it's the fish eggs. Um, he'll call out the unicha or the ogaricha or whatever. Like, so. If you spoke Japanese when you played this game, that may have been slightly helpful to you. If you spoke English when you played this game, it is extremely less helpful. It's just background noise. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a little more sense to me now. I can definitely remember those phrases there. And I think even like the countdown going into it is a little bit of a, a percussive beat to it. Um, so it is is very thematic there, quite obviously. Although obviously they, that was kind of lost on, on a lot of us who don't... Uh, speak Japanese. I don't think I, I went to any place like that when I went to a when I when I went to Japan a couple years ago. So I, I can't really say. If you get a chance, it's a lot of fun and not as expensive. If you go to a, a just a regular, you know, run of the mill place, like it's a pretty inexpensive night out for a lot of good sushi. Yeah, not, not sure how much else I have to say about, it, but that was some great things to to learn there. Uh, and you picked out another one of the mini game themes. You you want to talk about that? Yeah, I picked Magikarp Splash, not because I love the music so much as Magikarp is my spirit animal, um, but. This is a song where, well, in the game, you just basically try to flop your Magikarp up and hit the little ticker and try to flop up more times than the other guys. But for such a short game and honestly not that fun, like it's a very fast paced and driven piece of music. Like the first like two beats are very like just kind of intro chords and blasts of music like da-na, da-na, and then suddenly it's like and there's a lot going on in that piece like I it sounds like the xylophone and while it's probably all synth like in my head I always have this picture of this mad xylophonist just running up and down his little little board there it, but it's a very short piece of music just like 500 notes in it yeah, yeah, the mini game you know only lasts about thirty seconds or so, give or take. Yeah. <laughs> I forget the. I, I was looking up the the world record is like thirty six uh, or so uh, uh, dings or whatever you want to call it there, and uh, I I kind of compare the way it sounds a little bit to uh, Flight of the Bumblebee has it has kind of that quality, not as melodically memorable as Flight of the Bumblebee, which I think is one of the best examples of that rapidly changing beat and stuff or pitch and stuff like that uh, mm -hmm. which is i'm sure very difficult to play manually um but um well yeah like um flight of the bumblebee uh, like if we're using that as our example like originally it was played on what the violin which is a, an instrument that like it's a small flick of the wrist but like trying to play that same piece of music on say a tuba or or something that is much more difficult and time-consuming to change notes is quite a task. So I imagine something like this, if it was played on an actual actual instrument, was very difficult. If it was a synthesizer, like 
maybe not so much. Computers can help you do a lot of things, but... <laughs> Yeah, and indeed there. And and we'll talk more about the mini games probably in our in our bonus segment, but uh the the music for the mini games, I think my mom did have a comment about that. She had a, a very much like a, a circus or a carnival type of uh uh sound to it, uh huh. more so than the main game, which is more of like like I said, a maybe a, a collegiate uh marching band type sporting event type thing there. That kind of fits. I hadn't thought of it described as a carnival, but that really works for the contrast between the mini games and like the main we're fighting with our Pokemon game. Yeah, definitely a, a bit of a, a dichotomy there between the, the, the modes of the game, which is always kind of interesting to observe. Uh, I suppose at some time in the future, we can compare uh, the Magikarp's splash song to uh, Magikarp Jump. Uh, the mobile game uh, has very different music than this, this little mini game does. So, that's something we can maybe cover sometime in the future. <laughs> Happily. All right. All right. Well, we've got a couple more specific songs to look at. You mentioned the Hall of Fame track uh, when you were sending a list to me. And now the, the Hall of Fame is uh, it's used in a couple places in the game, but you're specifically referring to the Hall of Fame where like all the models go after you beat uh, a mode with that Pokemon. Is that right? And that one's a little slower, right? Yeah, that is what I, I, yeah, what I think I'm talking about. Like, I know I heard that motif in a, a couple other places in the game, but when I played it, when I remember playing it um, for this podcast and when I watched, uh, when I clicked on videos and looked up tracks later, yeah, it was the Hall of Fame where you get to scroll through and see your Pokemon. And um, yeah, it's just, it's such a grand and majestic track. Like another another one where they just loved their horn section, but um, you get like just a swell of sound and it, bits of it definitely sound inspired by the type of music that would be um, with the champion and the indigo plateau and like like similar chord progressions, I guess. Like I very much got that feel if it's not the exact melodies. And there's also like this high synth trilling, which is really what well, kind of grading at some places like some points it's it's really a high synth and it you sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not but and then with the really low note notes underneath it there's something about it that really strikes me I like I like it there's um very something very classical composition about this piece um a lot of different instruments um doing a lot of different things in a way that works together that reminds me of my time. I didn't do marching band. I did concert band, but where every instrument has their own thing going on and they're all so widespread disparate, but then they come together for the movements and it's, um, and, and makes the greater whole. And I really enjoy that type of composition for this type of game. It, it feels like you want maybe more of a pop track for a video game, but I really like that classic style, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought this track up uh, because actually the, the base Hall of Fame track is actually featured quite prominently in the uh, recently released Sword and Shield games. It's mm. I think used on the title screen um, as well as in like the final champion battle and stuff. And this version that we have here is a little more slow. It's also, a little, I would say, a little more formal and regal, maybe. 
than than some of the other versions. Certainly than the the version that plays when you finish a mode out and you see all the Pokemon you used on your team, uh, and especially you know obviously limited by the Game Boy hardware, the uh, version that's used in the main game, which is is sort of that. A very short loop with the little rising and falling that goes in the background of of that one, uh, and this gives it somewhat of a different quality, which I'll I'll definitely admit there. And I and I I do kind of agree that not all the samples worked out maybe as well as they could have or <laughs> I would have liked on this. Um, and we'll probably be talking about more of that a little bit later. Uh, do you have any any other things to say about the Hall of Fame theme? Um, I think I've said it all. <laughs> All right, well, I picked out kind of two tracks for for my last choice here, uh, but they are closely related. So uh, the way this game is structured uh, is that there are two rounds. You finish everything in the first round, and then you get to do basically the same stuff, uh, but everything is more difficult. The Pokemon are stronger. The AI is a little bit tougher. Not sure if it's as tough as uh, the reputation for, like, the the Pokemon Stadium, Pocket Monsters Stadium uh, that came out in Japan originally that was uh, Japan exclusive. But uh, basically you go through everything twice and the second time, of course, it's harder. That, that, you know, that kind of structure, we mentioned it a little bit with Snap uh, because just like Snap and I guess uh, another N64 game I like to mention, Diddy Kong Racing, there are two credits themes actually in this game. And... Uh, Unlike Snap, where one is uh, stylistically very different, uh, in Snap there's one that when you just complete the main game and get that new picture, and then there's another one when you complete uh, like all 63 or so, not 64, 63, uh, photographable Pokemon in there. Um, in this particular case, there is, um, you go through it once, you get one credit scene, then you get another one. Uh, stylistically, they are very similar. Um, they have sort of a, a jazz-style feel to them. But what I find interesting is that you beat the first round and you get this song that sounds, you know, fairly complete and, and like you've accomplished something and stuff like that. Um, I was never good enough to do this, but if you complete the second round, get all the stuff done in there, you get, I think, basically the same credit sequence but with a different song that has more of a, a, a less complete feel to it. And I feel that's Kind of intentional, but I also kind of feel like these two should be switched. And that that big info dump I just gave, does that... <laughs> uh, what do you think of that? Well, I like the idea of the two being switched, especially, like, I would agree with you, the uh, round two one, like, I don't know if incomplete is the right word, but it... Th yeah, there's something about it that, we're, like, when you think of switching them around, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's better. Um, but, yeah, like, there's a lot going on in these tracks, um, especially in round one. Like, there, it takes a lot of changes. And, like, honestly, when it the track opens, like, I, I thought it was kind of odd. Like, it was just a weird track. And then it changes to that beat. And then it gets odd again. And the little trilling notes. And somehow turns into this adult, contemporary, easy listening thing. Um there's a very familiar tune in there that I can't quite pick out what it's from. Maybe you can, but so it feels like, like the, a lot of the other tracks that are using motifs from um, red and blue, but yeah, R2 is kind of like all those things, except like concentrated into a syrup. Um, and even more of that adult contemporary, like I wrote in my notes that if this were a cartoon concert, Kamenashi Kazuya would sing a solo to this, 
no one gets that joke. That's okay. But it's it's very strange. I like it, but I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's that's one way of putting it. But like I said, I think maybe, you know, because if you've completed round two, you've basically seen everything this game has to offer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of as a result, you this, this theme says, well, maybe you should keep going and, and keep doing more, which is kind of an odd statement because mm. you think that they'd be doing the, 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 that one first and then the cheese is, oh, but wait, there's a harder mode for you to try. Yeah. Um, but I guess they really want people to keep going it or something like that. I mean, it does have a lot of play value for the mini games, I guess, and, and for the ability to battle with your friends once you're done the, the main plot. But yeah, it, it's just an interesting track. I, it would be interesting to know what was kind of going through their minds when they worked on this track specifically, like what they were trying to evoke out of the audience. But yeah, when you bring up switching it, I like I do think that might work a bit better. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of hard to say with all of that. But I, I just kind of felt it, it worked out that way. Well, that kind of does it for the list of tracks we were planning on talking about. There's still more to discuss in this one, though. Uh, if you in the chat or anything have any tracks you want us to talk about, go ahead and give us a comment. Um, or if you're watching this on replay, give us a comment on the video, and we'll try and work those into a future discussion. However, uh, there are a few more sound-based aspects we definitely wanted to talk about here. Mm-hmm. So, first off, there are Pokemon voices in this game. Now, as far as actual voice acting, those are mostly in the mini-games. And if you have a Pikachu that you brought in from Yellow version, you'll hear Pikachu's actual voice in there. Mm-hmm. Kind of an, a bit of an odd uh, d- divide there. By contrast, most of the actual Pokemon in the battling aspect, they don't... they sort of emulate... Their their chip tune cries from the main series games, but sort of filtered through a bit of some sort of of processing or something like that that gives them a more definitely a less eight bit type of feel to them. They sound honestly. I don't think they use the exact same processor or anything. But when when Pokemon X and Y came out. Um, they they use those more advanced um, synthesized uh, ways of handling stuff. Um, and any thoughts on on kind of either approach that we see around here? Well, you have a lot more knowledge of the technical aspect. Like for me, the sound of the Pokemon cries in this game seemed to be like higher def versions of the bit noises from Red and Blue. Like I could actually understand. The different Pokemon, which sometimes on the Game Boy, especially those early games, like they all just sound like chiptune tribbles. Whereas this, it's like, oh yeah, that does sound like a bird. So, like, I can see as the technology progressed up through like X and Y and the like, them being able to change how they record the sounds and, and use the sounds in the context of the game. Again, you have more technical knowledge on that than I do. So I was a I was actually a bit kind of impressed that oh this sounds so much better than I remember my Game Boy sounding but again it filtered through the N64 I don't think I appreciated it as a kid definitely 
Yeah, I, I kind of get what you're saying there. That yeah, it <laughs> definitely does sound. They sound related, but they're they're definitely different sounding. Different. And uh, if if you're wondering how they did made those sounds in like the the Game Boy versions, I have a, an interview with a guy who did a great little video. Uh, guy's name is uh, Retro Game Mechanics Explained, or Dots Are Cool. Did a great video explaining how the uh, the Game Boy side of things were done, and they sort of ad- ad- adapted that. I suppose here, but it does sound a little more rich and full, and, and some of them actually sound quite good, and it gives you a better idea of what they might have been going for there, uh, with what I like to call those those um, those voices in the old school games. Mm. I like to call those the modem screeches, <laughs> but um, yeah, so that that's about what I have to say there. So there's another part of this we should definitely talk about, and that is the fact that optionally you can turn it off. There is an announcer in this game, which is actually, you know, honestly pretty impressive. Uh, We had talked about Star Fox 64 earlier in this discussion, and that had a lot of voice in it. But they were able to cram a ton of it into this game, uh, thanks to the fine folks at the, I I believe, now defunct, maybe someone owns the name, but I don't think the the software house is around anymore, uh, Factor 5 which uh, developed that really good speech speech compression, which I believe they also used in some of their Star Wars games that they did on the N64, like uh, Rogue Squadron or Battle for Naboo. I think they also made heavy use of that, as does the the sequel to this, Pokemon Stadium 2 for Gold and Silver. So it's kind of an interesting situation because, you know, the N64, they have those cartridges, and, you know, they don't have a ton of space on them, so this compression format made it so they could fit a lot more on there. But sort of the, the, the sort of paradox is the cartridges have the fast load time, so you could do sort of that real-time commentary in some ways a lot more easily than you could on a disc-based game where you'd have to load everything into into RAM uh, off the disc, which could take a long time and, and hard, hard to cram things. Um, as far as who does the announcer in the English version, that person is Ted Lewis, which I thought was actually like a, a catch-all that they use sometimes, um, but it Turns out he seems to be a specific person who worked uh, with four kids for for quite a while. Uh, as far as the Pokemon franchise, I believe he does do the, uh, the 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 battle announcer voice in certain episodes of the TV show, along with a, a zillion other characters. He's probably best known though as the voice of Tracy Skatchett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Tracy is one of them. Yeah, uh, he does that voice, and, and when the announcer's voice goes up a little bit, you can say, "Yeah, that definitely sounds a little bit like Tracy, doesn't it?" Uh, what do you think of, of the announcer overall, Anne? I like him. His performance at the time was a bit disdained by critics. Like, there was all these jokes about, like, I'm so glad I can toggle this guy off. But I'm finding that nowadays, like, a lot of people on forums are praising him for just having being very animated in his performance and making it sound like he's invested in your inci- exciting battle. Which, as you mentioned, like, for this type of video game voiceover and the type of game it is and cartridges and the technology of the time like was a little bit hard to do and and a bit of a rarer thing um but he was just very excited and into it and sounded like the pokemon league announcer and i i remember i always loved throwing out my magikarp and his me what's the point of splashing and and like jinx like what a lovely kiss like he just was really into it and i think he made the game better yeah, I mean, they, he he has like a phrase for like every Pokemon in mm-hmm. terms of like he has their name in there, and like every every attack in there, and a whole bunch of different scenarios. There's probably stuff I've never heard, mm-hmm. uh, just because they were able to with the compression that Factor Five was able to to give to 
uh, hell, they were able to squeeze so much in there. Which, like I said, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a weird dynamic. You have less space to work with, but it's faster to access, so they can do that kind of real-time commentary based on what happens mm-hmm. uh, in some ways more easily than a disk-based system would do. Um, I think Stadium 2 also has the announcer. We'll talk about that probably sometime next year. And then uh, they didn't do an announcer, I don't think, for the third generation Battle Revolution or Gale of Darkness games. And then they brought it back. They have a different person. They have, uh, I forget his real name, Roger Parsons, the announcer for most of the history of the anime, including now, is uh, the voice of the the stadium announcer in the Gen 4 games. Now, Speaking of people who've been announcers, and in the Japanese version of this game, there's also an announcer. I think you tracked down some information on that guy, Anne. Can you give us something, uh, some information? Yeah, a bit. His name is Koichi Hasabe. Um, he's a voice actor with Arts Vision um, and seemed to get his background in theater acting. And I, I discovered that he belonged at the time, like possibly even helped found um, a theater company called Sugoroku which uh, seems to do a lot of children's theater and, like, family shows and ghost stories. And I read somewhere that, like, every autumn they do a big show for elementary students. I'm working from, like, translating from Japanese here, um, so it's hard to really say. But, like, I found a lot a lot more about this company than about Mr. Hasabe, but apparently it produced a lot of voice actors who went on into animes that were really popular that we would recognize today. And was also started by voice actors, which I think is an interesting dichotomy, like both that he came from a theater background and then a bunch of voice actors went and did theater. It it just seems like two worlds that don't often mix, like two avenues of acting that don't often come together because you, you wouldn't necessarily audition for a voiceover role with a theater resume and vice versa. So that was really interesting to me. And apparently it has some prestige. But much like uh, Ted Lewis, like Hasabe has been uh, an announcer and a voice, not just in the stadium game, but also at various times in the anime. So he's done a lot of one-off roles and, again, a couple announcers and, you know, the league voices. And um, he seems to do a lot more older gentlemen. Yeah, I'm not sure if we ever get to see the announcer. Maybe we do at some point in the TV show or something. Like that. I guess we must at some point or something like that. We usually just hear him. I, I feel like occasionally, at one league at least, but <laughs> there's a lot of leagues. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess the other thing we should probably talk about is there's a lot of sound effects in this game, obviously, for all the various moves and, and all sorts of other stuff there. Uh, some of the attacks sound... Sound really cool. Some of the beam-based attacks have some nice sound effects. Um, I always remember with the announcer voice, you know, a psychic blast <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Because uh, obviously that's a very commonly used move in, in this game. What do you think of, like, uh, the music overall in terms of, like, how would you rate it or, or something like that? Like, how does it stand in the pantheon of, of Pokemon games? Uh, and uh, do you have any thoughts there? Well... Mm, I'm of two minds, because on the one hand, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It gets you excited, and then it kind of, like, just backs off. You Like, you know, when I was playing, I don't, wasn't really paying attention to the music. It was exciting, and, like, it built up my energy, and it was pretty, and, like, the Hall of Fame was majestic, and 
the mini games were like fun, but they basically just kind of set the mood for the game I was about to play. And then I didn't notice them anymore, which in like, isn't that a rule of composition? Like the best compositions are the ones you don't notice. They just do their job and you don't have to think about them. But at the same time, like I remember some other Pokemon games where they use sound in really cool ways, like say Roxy's Gym in um, Black and White 2. Black and White. Yeah, where it's like if you defeat all her band members, like each instrument falls out of the background music one at a a time as you beat them until you finally face her and like there's nobody else playing. And or like in Sinnoh where there's all this great music, but then you walk into that church and it's just silence. So like, I feel like this game didn't have as many opportunities to do things like that. So I shouldn't criticize it for not being able to play with music in creative and different ways. But when I think of like the pantheon of great Pokemon scores, like it is always those ones that did some very unique and creative things with music specifically that you had to notice. So like I said, I'm up two minds. On the one hand, it it did the job of a video game score or of, of an anything score. And on the other hand, it's like the ways they used the score could have been more creative, but given the constraints of this game, like it's basically just a stadium battle game. I don't know what else they could have done with it. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, you mentioned that some of the dynamic stuff, I mean, there are, we mentioned that in each eight uh, match series, the music would get more serious as Mm -hmm. you would move through there. But there's nothing like in some of the games, some of the main series games where when uh, your opponent is down to their last Pokemon or your Pokemon is at low health or something, they will actually change the music. Right. There's there's nothing quite like that here. As far as the overall quality, uh, once I kind of got a hold of in my mind that they were going for that sort of live venue, live sporting venue music, uh, rather than maybe necessarily the highest possible fidelity they could achieve with the with the with the the instruments they had available. Uh, things started to you know sort of gel for me. Although I think there are a couple like instrument samples that don't sound the greatest. There's some guitar work that doesn't sound the greatest. There's one of the versions of the, uh, I think it's in the in the kids club or something like that, uh, the mini game section that has the uh, a variant of the bicycle theme is not uh, all that great to listen to, as far as I'm concerned. There's like one or two instruments that don't sound real great there, um, but overall, I, I really do enjoy the music from this game. It's it's different than what we get with sort of like some of the modern. Uh, games on on several levels Mm. and it does seem like they had more or less a consistent vision for a lot of it yeah okay so our next discussion uh, we do these pretty much in order of the u.s release date and uh, based on that our next one is going to be pokemon trading card game for the game boy slash game boy color so this is a basically a, a digitized version of the card game um, that has cards from the first couple sets of the trading card game. Uh, you may know that a long time ago I did a pretty much a full Let's Play of this game on my channel back when I was still actively doing those, uh, where I would actually scan in the real card and show that over the the uh, the picture to give you a little comparison because they do some neat little like sprite art things with the uh, the card art. 
Unlike, say, Stadium, which you would have had to have an original cartridge because that hasn't been re-released on Virtual Console, um, if you want to pick up a copy of um, of trading card game for Game Boy, you can either find an original cartridge or it is uh, easily available on the 3DS Virtual Console. Um, that one doesn't have as much music to work with as uh, Stadium does. Stadium is actually, music-wise, a pretty big game. But I think we're still going to have a pretty good discussion there. Uh, until then, Anne, thank you very much for helping out here. Thank you for having me. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. All right, well, let's talk about Pokemon Stadium, the game itself. So... I mean, one of the criticisms leveled at this game, I guess we should get out of the way right away, is that uh, in order to get the, the full use out of it, you really do need to have one of the red, blue, yellow, and I guess in Japan, green games to go with it. Because otherwise you're stuck using rental Pokemon that are generally not as powerful. It is possible, people have done it, to beat the game 100%, pretty much, uh, with, without having to bring in their own Pokemon. But it's considerably easier if you can train your own Pokemon and get your own moves there. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is one kind of uh, limitation. It has that kind of weird transfer pack. And you can even, like, un- unlock... Uh, there's, there's a Game Boy playing mode that you can have in there. And you can actually use that to um, to run the games. And you can unlock, like, double and triple speed, which is kind of, kind of interesting there. It's curious, and what did you have to work with when you did a, a replay uh, of this recently? Did you have, like, some... Were you stuck with the rental Pokemon, or...? I was stuck with the rental Pokemon for the replay. I seem to remember as a child that we were able to import some, uh, like, from our Game Boy. But, like, I don't remember much about that. I don't remember that we did it often. Again, I was much more into the um, mini games, um, But, yeah, like... On the replay, it was definitely all rental Pokemon, and it is difficult. It is difficult, but but yeah, again, it can be done. Like you, you just have to think and plan your journey a little better. I think. <laughs> so yeah, there's there is a bit of limited value if you don't have those, and I do when I go to um, events and stuff like that where they have Stadium out there. A lot of folks will just go ahead and play the mini games, a because those take less time. Mm. A lot of them are, are really like Magikarp Splash is a good example. Have to be honest, very little depth to them, and are maybe not the most interesting. I think some of the more interesting ones are the ones like like the Sushi Go Round and the Ekans Diglett mini game. Uh, the ones that aren't just button mashers, I think I find the the yeah. most the most fun with. Um, but even you know, I, I when I played this. I had uh, most of my my Pokemon were registered. I, I have my childhood copy of this game, and it has teams registered for a lot of the modes there cool. um, from folks in my game. But even then, you know, when you get to round two, that can be really difficult. Like, I guess I should mention right about now the the battle mechanics in Gen One sort of move over to that area, very different from what we see today. Now, obviously, there's like three types that don't exist, and you can almost say that there's a fourth because there are no offensive dragon-type attacks except for Dragon Rage, which does fixed damage. But 
in addition to all that, uh, the battle mechanics for this game, there's a, there's a whole interesting story behind there because actually they did, did not uh, supply HAL with a direct like flowchart or anything like that. Uh, basically, uh, Satoru Iwata, because he worked back at HAL at the time, was stuck spending like a week reverse engineering the Game Boy assembly code or whatever it is to try and figure out how everything... And he got things pretty close to right. Uh, there's a few little inaccuracies, like if something is um, has zero effect due to type uh, advantage, so like if you try to use a uh, fighting-type attack against a ghost or something like that, instead of saying it doesn't affect, it says like it missed, which is a little confusing sometimes. But he did a pretty pretty darn good job there. But there's all sorts of weird stuff in Gen 1 mechanically, like uh, you get more critical hits if you're faster, um, so, for example, in, like, round two of one of the competitions, I had this uh, Ninetales I could just not beat. Uh, because although it was using Fire Blast against my Blastoise, that is, you know, obviously going to resist that, it was still doing, like, over half damage because it would get a critical hit practically every time because it was so much faster. Or, or, or exactly how, I forget exactly how it works, but it works very differently than what we have now. And... Uh, some of the attacks have different uh, properties and stuff like that. Toxic is obviously very different. Um, I'm trying to think what are some of the other major changes beyond the, um, you know, lack of a couple different types. Oh, oh obviously, and we and this is way before Gen Four, so we don't have these. Uh, the special physical split is all by type, not by move. Mm. So that kind of limits the viability of certain Pokemon. You know, if they don't have a good physical attack stat, even if one of their types is like Rock or Ground or something like that, you know, there's not a lot you can do with them, um, which has has kind of its own issues. Um, so there can be kind of a, a narrow range uh, of, of possibilities there sometimes. What about you, Anne? Did you have any Gen 1, oh yeah, that's how that worked moments playing through this game? Um, A few. It was mostly due to like type advantage, which is the same problem I have whenever I go back and play like Pokemon Yellow. <laughs> of just like, oh yeah, Pokemon that gained the steel type that did not have it in Gen 1, not being weak against fire was is always my downfall. But Yeah, Magnemite and Magneton will trip you up a little bit if you're not used to the fact time. that, oh yeah, they, they're not, they don't have steel yet, so their only weakness is ground. Right. Similarly, like, the, the bite attack is, is normal here. Right, oh gosh. Yeah, anytime I'm facing a psychic or a ghost, and I was like, wh where's the my dark type? There is no dark type move. Calmed. <laughs> yeah, there aren't even very good. I mean, the only practical ghost moves, there's Lick, which does virtually no damage. Uh, it's a very weak attack. Uh, it has a chance to paralyze, which is nice. And then there's also um, Nightshade. Oh, I there's think. Nightshade, which right? is just, you know, seismic toss, basically, because it does damage <laughs> based on your level. So the type advantage wouldn't even matter there. Um, a lot of things they kind of had to, to fix for Gen 2 to slowly improve the rebalance the mechanics. And then there's only one special stat. So all those little Gen 1 quirks are all present yeah. <laughs> pretty much in this game that we've since been, you know, ironed out and stuff like that. I had mentioned earlier in this discussion that the last time they'd made a game like this was back in the fourth generation. For the Wii, they made Pokemon Battle Revolution for the Diamond and Pearl. And I sort of the catch there is that um, they didn't bother because you didn't have ways to really update things. 
it was it kind of once like heart gold and soul silver came out you you couldn't use it even platinum wasn't really designed for it because you didn't have the alternate uh, giratina stuff in there either and and since then i guess they decided like after starting with like gen 6 or whatever once they started doing the 3d say i guess they kind of decided well we don't really need those anymore but to be honest, you know, even though the frame rate in in this game is not super great, there's a fair bit of slowdown and sometimes very low frame rates. I have to say that if you've watched sort of the the 3DS games, even if they're playing on like a new Nintendo 3DS or whatever, the the frame rate in those double battles that they do there is not very good. <laughs> and I really would have liked to kind of had a game like this on, say, like an updated version for the original Wii or a version for the Wii U. And, you know, now maybe it really is with, um, you know, Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee and Sword and Shield on the Switch. Maybe everything's conversion. We really don't need a game like this anymore. But any thoughts on any of that, Anne? Sorry to kind of uh, talk at you <laughs> no, like no that. No, no worries. But... Yeah, no, I was thinking... Like, I've been watching, I don't have a Switch yet, but I've been watching my friends go through Sword and Shield, and just the capabilities of that game, um, and the way it almost is modeled off of more of a tournament, I think, when you get to the end, it seems, and, and you know, even in uh, Sun and Moon with the Battle Royale, and I guess ever since, really, they got the Wi-Fi, internet, global connections to really be a viable thing. I feel like they we I don't know about frame rates like that is definitely more your territory but as far as the experience of playing that type of game either by yourself or with friends um and kind of having that Pokemon Stadium type battle and the way the graphics have changed where you know it's not like just two little two dimensional sprites like you can have 3D and there's cameras going around and cuts of you and the other trainer and the Pokemon I can see how maybe a lot of people are like, you know what, if we remade Pokemon Stadium, we're basically just remaking one small aspect of games that we already have. But at the same time, like I do think if they were creative about it, there is a, a market for it. Again, with the technology that we have today and the way things have progressed but, I, I don't know. I think think maybe part of me just really wants a, a Pokemon game with an announcer. Like no disrespect to the people who do the the streaming um, and do the uh, the voiceovers there, but part of me kind of likes that as as cheesy as you might think it is. And that's something we've definitely been missing from um, the more recent games, along with a, a not real great frame rate when you have four Pokemon in play with highly complex models and mm. things like like that. But yeah, I mean, I guess there really is at this point not so much a need for a game like this to to really exist, which is in a way kind of sad. Um, I Yeah, I feel like with a little creativity, they could find a way to rework the Pokemon Stadium, what is it, conceit, the premise and the idea, and find a way to have it alongside some things that you just can't get from the main series games, which was what was so magical about Pokemon Stadium when it came out was like you got this, the big grandiose sense that you you couldn't really get from your little handheld game. And you got to have that experience with friends in a way that you couldn't have in just your regular um, link cable Pokemon battles. So I think, I, I don't think we need a, 
Pokemon Stadium as it existed in the past anymore, because I think that basically just exists in our main series game now. But I do think there is a way to take that concept of what Pokemon Stadium gave you that wasn't in the main series game and make that to, to find those things that are relevant to us now and make that a side game. But that is that is a tall order to ask of the of the game department, I guess. But I think it's possible. Were there any other aspects of the game that you kind of wanted to, to, to call out there? Um, I, I kind of wanted to mention that, you know, we sort of alluded to it a little bit, maybe, that after you beat all the modes in a given round, the last thing you get to do is that you get to do a... This is something you can only really do in Gen 1 because of the, the way things are, I guess, not balanced, is that uh, you get to do a six-on-one battle against Mewtwo, ah. who... You, appears above the stadium and then you get to sort of uh fight that you build a team including potentially your own Mewtwo in there and you get to you know try to take it down like that the first one is not easy the second one also has amnesia and i think recover um which makes it a lot more difficult uh, but you still have like six Pokemon to do it with. Um, that's that's something we like to stick in is Mewtwo as a final boss even in some of the more recent ish games i'm trying to think what the most recent game where they might have done that is um but nothing's coming to mind because it's actually been a little while but there's a bunch of little other games where mewtwo is sort of the the penultimate boss um like one of the one of the ranger games is like that and and things like that and of course we, we mentioned uh in a little pre-thing we did here that uh around the time they recorded we recorded this they added Mewtwo stuff to Rumble Rush on mobile and also Pokemon Masters on mobile. And I wouldn't be surprised. We know that, that Mewtwo is somewhere in the game data for uh, Sword and Shield. Um, I guess you can maybe transfer it over somehow, but I, I don't know if they're going to do an event or something like that. But, you know, ha having this release relatively close to Pokemon the first movie, regardless of which territory you're in, certainly provides a little bit of context there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, Mewtwo... Mewtwo is just cool. Like, it shows up and, like, it just screams, like, boss or pentultimate boss. Yeah, I think that would be something that, like, well, that they can always do um, is, yeah, like, you beat everything and then suddenly some legendary Pokemon or, or you know, some big thing. Like, there's always something bigger in the Pokemon world. Rayquaza could come, Arceus could come down and you make your own team to battle them. There's a lot of options and and things. And as cheesy as they were, the mini games were my favorite part of that game. Like there is always going to be a place to stick little fun things like that in the Pokemon world, whether it's in the main series game or or a side game. And again, just finding those things that are cool and unique and like things you can only do with Pokemon or, or, you know, things that have a fun challenge to them. I think there's always room for it. You just got to find it because I could play Lickitung eating sushi all day long. Yeah. Yeah. The mini games are, are a nice touch. I mean, that was one of the complaints about uh, Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee is that the game corner doesn't have, you can see what some of the things are on there, but you can't do anything with any of them. Uh, which is really a shame that they, considering it's based on yellow, they didn't bring back the surfing minigame or, or stuff like that, <laughs> which is really 
kind of too bad. And uh, in uh, in Sword and Shield, oh, they have well, they have cooking and uh, yeah. the, uh, the camping, <laughs> the breath so of the wild. Always, always, <laughs> Yeah, don't discount having something that's not just straight up battling and progression in, in that form to to break things up. That is a, a kind of a nice thing. 